You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Day and night must scramble for a living, feed a wife and children, send his daily press and Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to join the show, you can call us at 844-999-9249, or you can email the show at letstalktorah at gmail.com. We will be joined by somebody quite fascinating. We are going international again, but I don't know how to pronounce his name. His name is Jope, and his last name, I think it's Van Wick. He recently um, wrote a book with somebody else about his mother. His mother, for those who are familiar with the Anne Frank diary, so his mother is, or was, Bep. She's one of the helpers, and he wrote a book with uh, all kinds of fascinating information. Instead of coming um, from the side of Anne Frank's diary, from Anne Frank herself, it's coming from the people that were trying to protect the Frank family. And they were pretty successful uh, for a couple years. Uh, Of course, unfortunately, they were given up. And in the book also, he discusses who they believe was responsible. And we're going to talk to him why that's important and why they want to talk about it and why the book was written now. And uh, Joe will be calling us in the next segment. But... It's almost Passover, and things are happening. People are cleaning. Lots to talk about. The cleanup of Passover, the searching for bread, uh, getting ready for the the actual Seder, getting the children ready, getting the food cooked, all kinds of stuff. That really will be our focus, at least for the first part uh, today until Job calls in, and then we'll see what we have time for afterwards. So, with all my paperwork over here, here we go. So, first of all, Tonight, people will be searching, Jews around the world will be searching for bread. That is what's going to be happening tonight in Jewish homes. Uh, There's a whole process. But before we get there, I read an article. It troubled me. It was written by a feminist. I don't remember her name, but she said she's a feminist. And she very much resents the the lead-up to the Passover holiday. So um, I guess in an answer to her complaints, because let's be real, who's doing all the cleaning? The mothers are doing the cleaning. Who's doing all the cooking? The mothers are doing all the cooking. So there's a lot, a lot of preparation in cleaning up a whole house and in putting away dishes, bringing up new dishes, cooking food all of a sudden for an army of people that will be joining. It's, it is nothing to talk about. It's a lot of hard work. Husbands try to help. Children try to help. But mothers usually say that our help is um, is good, but not what they were looking for. So to help those who are struggling with this, um, a few things my wife always taught me, and that is you got to learn when to say no. You got to learn when to say enough is enough. In other words, if you can't do everything, then don't do everything. In other words, first of all, you need to know it's not spring cleaning. We are cleaning the house to search for unleavened 
bread, to search for bread. That's what we're searching for. We're not looking to clean all, all the sheets and all the linens and, and all of a sudden take all the toys and clean them out and, and all the beds and ah, the whole house and the vacuuming and the sweeping. Dirt on the floor is dirt. And I was, if it's not a cookie on the floor, if it's not a pretzel on the floor, if it's not a piece of bread you left in a cabinet, so you can't make yourself crazy. There, there has to be a point where you do not make yourself overly crazy. Not to say that historically it wasn't a time where people did make themselves crazy. They, they, uh, they washed down walls and they scraped down their tables and they, and they were on their hands and knees. A little bit we have to remember, historically, a person's house was teeny. Your house was one room where everybody slept. If you were in a colder climate, you had an extra bedroom. In the warmer climates, you cooked outside, you ate outside. The purpose of the house was so everybody had a place to sleep with a roof over their head. At colder climate, you also had a place to eat, so you weren't freezing. It wasn't our houses with numerous bedrooms and closets and basements and dining rooms and living rooms and dens and, and attics and storage. Who knows how much storage we have? I mean, and my house has got to be four or five closets full of storage. And we don't keep a lot of stuff. We're a little stingy on what we, uh, and what we keep. So we have much more to clean. So you really have to be careful if you're a mother or you're in charge of the house, you cannot make yourself crazy. Then you come in to Passover and you're the dish towel that we're wringing out. That's not fair. And the same thing goes with the cooking. I know it's important for mothers. They want to have the, this amazing banquet. But you know what? If at the end of the day, it's your health and it means one less salad or one less what we call a kugel or one less uh, brisket or one less, uh, I don't know, uh, four spice or, or hors d'oeuvres or whatever you want to call it. So make less stuff. So everyone will not get the gourmet meal, but you'll be a person and you'll enjoy the evening of the Seder. So you got a little bit not bend to the pressure. If people don't like how much food you're serving, they don't have to come back, but they will. Don't worry. They'll all come back. So, so for those who are complaining about how hard it is, it's probably because they're doing too much and the wrong kind of work. But let's get into what's really happening. So throughout the world, over these last few weeks, people are searching their house. They are cleaning. And the truth is they're cleaning everything. You have little children in the house. You worry if they hide candy bars. You worry if they had a bag of pretzels they put in their room somewhere. You're opening up the drawers. You're looking in the drawers. You're trying to make sure they don't walk around the house, crumbling stuff or cookies or cake or who knows what. And we're busy, busy getting all the bread out of the house, getting ready for the Passover holiday where there's no bread. Now, why are we busy cleaning the house for bread? So... As a, I hope we all understand, first things first, right? You can't eat bread. On Passover, you're having matzah, manashevitz, strites, the hand-round matzah. I know a lot of people like that. The, the matzah that comes in the box, that's what we call machine matzah. So you're eating matzah the whole next week. Some people like it. My wife loves it. I personally, matzah is not one of my favorite foods. But uh, we do what we got to do. So... Hopefully everybody understands that bread is for sure off limits to eat. The question is, why can't I have it in my house? Like, what's the big deal? I'm being careful what I eat. If I don't have to worry about having it in my house, so what am I searching for? Like, what am I worried about? So you need to know like this. The, the Torah says you cannot own, have in your possession, see, but see really means see your own personal 
bread, or what we call chametz. So really, the Torah says you cannot own bread. Now, technically, you could make it ownerless. But since most people, yeah, I say the the donuts and the and the and the bagels in my uh, freezer are ownerless, but who am I fooling? No one's coming in to take them, so I'll retake them back. So therefore, the rabbis instituted that we we search and we look for it to make it real that I really am getting rid of all my chametz, all my bread. Because again, first auditory says I can't have chametz in the house. I can't have bread in the house. That's the first thing we need to understand. So it's it's coming. It's not coming from left field. It is what the Torah says. That's the law. That's true. Nothing to talk about. Now, I don't have to go crazy. If it's dirt on the floor, so who cares? First of all, you're not eating it, and second of all, it's it's you're stepping on it. It has no value. It's worthless. So you got to be careful how crazy you actually make yourself searching for this bread. Now, because we have such big houses, people have been cleaning for some people two weeks, some people three weeks people even upwards of a month. The joke always goes, some people from Hanukkah time are already cleaning. So, um, but then tonight is a very old custom that the father of the house or, or someone will take a candle and a feather and a spoon. Now again, this is very old fashioned because what are you doing with a fo- the spoon and the feather? But um, the idea is to search the house with a candle. Why? Because a candle it's not super bright. It's a small flame. You'll go into the corners. You'll nooks and crannies. You'll look around the house. Again, that was perfect in those days when you didn't have a very big house and you didn't really own anything. Nowadays, a candle could be dangerous. There are people that unfortunately search under their bed with a candle. Well, hello. What do you think happens when you search under your bed with a candle? You, you, the. <coughs> sorry about that. The um, the bed catches on fire. That's terrible. So it's important to to recognize that a candle is fire, and it's very not practical. So many people will start the search with a candle, and then after they start the search, they put the candle out, and they just take a flashlight. We don't actually turn the lights on in the room. Some people say you could, but for the most part, we search with a flashlight or something like that because... You get very close, you look in the corners, you look on the bed, you open the drawers, you look inside to give a, a, a another check to make sure there is no bread in the house. Where does the feather and the spoon come in? The feather was what they would use to clean up the crumbs. Again, they didn't have very big houses. And the spoon was the idea was like a bag to hold any bread that you happen to find. You usually weren't going to find very much bread. Now, Many people happen to have a custom that they put out 10 pieces of bread. And I always tell my wife, she first of all wraps it up in tinfoil so the bread shouldn't spread. I say, don't make it hard, right? This is not hide and seek. I'm not looking for you to find a place that I can't find. Just put it in the open. That's the custom. I find the 10 pieces of bread. I, I put them in a bag, and then I take my time to search through the house. Now, as an interesting aside, after this law that we're talking about, there's really other stuff that's involved. And that is that um, in the Kabbalah and the Zohar, I know people like the idea of Kabbalah, but bread over the Passover holiday signifies my evil inclination. My bread signifies evil things I've done. Of course, we all like danishes and and bread and uh, toast and bagels and cookies. I'm not talking about the whole year. I'm talking about specifically over the Passover holiday, we look at bread as being evil and the matzah, the unleavened bread, the wafers as being 
um, good. And so the idea now becomes when I am searching for bread, I'm really symbolizing to myself that I'm searching for any evil inside of me. It's a part of my cleansing process, all part of a reminder of who and what I am and what my goal is in life. And we got to always clean up. It's like a car wash. Things get dirty. You clean it off and you start again. So, too, things happen during the year. Maybe I'm not as good as I should be. So let's look for it. Let's search for it. Let's check for it. And then let's get it out of my system. That's one facet of what I accomplished through all this searching. Another facet of what gets accomplished in all this searching, I think, is really fascinating. The, um, we've talked about this before. The, the matzah is like a, dumb, a double symbolism. First of all, slaves would eat matzah, that unleavened bread. It's filling. It's very cheap. I know nowadays it's not very cheap, but in those days, um, it was very cheap. That was the cheapest bread. You, you didn't even let the dough rise. You slapped it against the wall of the oven. You know, five seconds later, if the oven is hot enough, you take it out. So it was a very cheap type of food that was meant for slaves. That's part one. So the matzah, therefore, becomes a, a symbolism for slavery. And second of all, um, the matzah is to, to by, by Torah law, for matzah to be qualified as matzah, um, it has, the whole process has to take less than 18 minutes. A very, very fast process from when the water hits the flour and the kneading and the rolling out and any holes you got to punch in it and stick in the oven and getting out of the oven. That is an 18-minute process. Anything longer than that, it is disqualified for the holiday of Passover. Why? Why do we need something that takes so little time to make? Because that symbolizes how quickly God took us out of Egypt. And it was after the ten plagues are over, after the plague of the firstborn, and at midnight all the Egyptian firstborn are killed by God. So we don't leave that night. The next morning, all the mothers get up, and they're starting to prepare breakfast, and the Egyptians say, if you think you're hanging around my country, you're out of here. God says, it's time to get out. We pack up our bags, and we leave so fast that eating this matzah helps us remember how fast we left. So there's the double symbolism. Number one, matzah, this unleavened bread, shows me that I was a slave. And number two, it shows me how fast God took me out of Egypt. And both those ideas, by the way, are a theme throughout the entire Seder tomorrow night, the Passover Seder. That's the theme that we want to remember we were slaves and we want to remember that God took us out of Egypt. Um, just a thought that comes to my head. One of the things also important to remember once we're talking about this and this double idea, um, children are very good at asking questions. The goal of the evening is to answer the questions. But the truth of the matter is that almost all the questions, that's the joke in my house, almost all the questions are answered with the same answer, that we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God took us out of Egypt so fast. And that really answers just about every question that a child could ask. So if you remember that line, you're pretty safe. Or you could say, I don't know. But before you say, I don't know, always a good idea to say first, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God took us out super fast. So in my mind, when we're busy searching to get all the bread out of the house, isn't that what we're remembering? As the goal is to remember how fast that we were slaves and how fast God took us out of Egypt. 
And again, we talked about with the sergeant a couple weeks ago, because the lesson was just so fantastic from that sergeant, right? The lesson of the sergeant was, right, the, his story from Vietnam. If you didn't hear that show, it's two weeks ago. You got to check it out. That he, in Vietnam, when he's coming back from a mission that, I guess, the first part was successful, but then they were attacked, his whole mission is he's replaying his grandfather's Seder in his mind because that night, it was really over a couple days, but that night was Passover. So when we put this into our children, we like get into their bones, we, we inculcate them with this story over and over and over again, that's what the children are going to, to remember. And that's what we want. We're searching for the bread. We're looking for the bread. We only want the matzah all to remember that we were slaves and how fast God took us out of Egypt. That's what happens in Jewish homes throughout the world tonight. I mean, I guess if you're a different time zone, it'll, it might be tonight already, but not yet. Tomorrow, everyone's starting to get ready for Passover, because the truth is, there's a lot of preparations. Um, you gotta make sure you have your bitter herbs, you gotta make sure you have your matzah, and you gotta make what we call haroses. It's like a dip, like with nuts and apples and and wine, and the, we dip the the bitter herbs in it, and and we gotta prepare um, just all kinds of food. What's interesting, by the way, in many homes tomorrow, they will not eat matzah, as you can't eat bread by tomorrow afternoon because you're burning any bread that you're not, that you didn't get rid of, um, you're going to actually burn that tomorrow morning to destroy it. That's all part of the process. And then by, I'll say 12, 1 o'clock, you can't eat bread tomorrow. But now you can't eat bread. We don't want you to eat the matzah either because we want you to have a, we want you to be excited for the new taste of matzah. So in a lot of homes, what are you going to eat? You have to have a piece of chicken, and you have to have who knows what. And I see on my screen, it looks like my music is coming up. So I've given you a good idea of what's happening tonight and tomorrow. When we come back from the break, we will be joined by Jope, the son of one of the helpers of Anne Frank. So hold through the break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a cord. <laughs> I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Yeah. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Can that itch be caused by stress? Now, we already know that stress can increase your odds of everything from colds to cancer. And now there's new research to suggest that stress can also make you itch. You see, it seems clear that stress activity is the immune system of mice, making them itch, and the experts say the same is probably true for humans. The study from the University of Medicine in Berlin and McMaster University in Canada found that stress can exacerbate skin disease by increasing the number of immune cells in the skin. Now, these immune cells are believed responsible for initiating and perpetuating skin diseases that can make you itch. 
The report in the American Journal of Pathology indicates that doctors were able to prevent stress-induced increases in white blood cells in the skin by blocking the function of the proteins that attract these immune cells to the skin in the first place. Now, more work is certain to come in this area of research. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. And as promised, all the way from the Netherlands, we are joined by Joe Van Wyck. Jope is the author of Anne Frank, a new book, The Untold Story, uh, and the son of one of Anne Frank's helpers. So this story is coming from a totally different angle. Jope, can you hear me? I can hear you very clear. Good afternoon, Rabbi. Thank you. Good a- Well, uh, by, by you, it's good evening, right? Yes, that's true, but <laughs> it's their afternoon. That's why I say it. Thank you very much. So we're going to get introduced to Joe. Joe, before we even start, um, who are you? What do you do? Let's let everybody know who Joe is. Well, okay. My, my, my last professional job was marketing manager of two national newspapers in the Netherlands. And they are called NSA Handelsblatt and Algemeen Dagblad. And now I'm the co-author and publisher of my mother's biography, you told it just, and frankly, untold story. And the subtitle of that book is The Hidden Truth About Ellie Fossen, the Youngest Helper of the Secret Annex. And Ellie Fossen is the nickname of my mother in the diary of Anne Frank. My grandfather, Johan Fosca, is the creator of the legendary revolving bookcase. And now I'm very, very busy with the promotion of this biography. It became my mission already for 10 years. Yes, I say my mission, because it is needed in this time of upcoming anti-Semitism. And, and that's exactly, I know I'm interrupting you, Job. So to make sure everybody heard clearly, so it's Job's mother who was, uh, her name was Bep, but she was from the Younger Helpers and a friend of Anne Frank. And Job's grandfather built that famous cabinet that everybody, that the, yes. uh, the Frank family hid behind. And this is the first thing I really wanted you to talk about, um, that you believe that this book ha- is very, very important for the Netherlands. And, um, but let's take it slow, because you started talking about it. So yeah. um, what do you think nowadays about anti-Semitism, about racism? Because that's really, I think, what you're trying to accomplish to yes, teach that's, people. That's, that's true. That's true. That's my point. Well, after the awful, bizarre World War II and the killing... Mind you, the killing of six million Jews, you would think that anti-Semitism would decrease. Well, here in the Netherlands, and I think all over the world, anti-Semitism is still there. And I can witness that it is increasing in this confusing time. I'm working with the so-called new media, and some people are very aggressive, and they are really insulting, only because I wrote together with my co-author, a biography about the helper of the Jews. You are not worth living, is one of these insulting comments. Wow, amazing. Unbelievable, but true. Unbelievable. So you really... Unbelievable, but true. Yeah, you know, there are people that when they, when they get a little bit older, they say it's time to retire, 
and and they're going to sit back and put their feet up on their desk. And you, on the other hand, you've lived a good life, and you're actually starting, or you have started a, a like a whole new life, a whole new project, and yeah, uh, it's amazing, true. amazing, amazing. So let me ask you like this: let's let's get rolling a little bit. Um, again, I'm we're, I'm going to assume that everybody listening knows the story of Anne Frank. They've seen the plays. They've seen the movies. They've, uh-huh. Maybe they've read her book about a, a family in the Netherlands that was hidden, for, and they survived just about the whole war. And at the end, uh, they, were, they were given up. But you had this group of people that put their life on the line, because they would have been killed. They put their life on the line to hide, to feed, to protect this family. So let's 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 uh, cut let's cut to the chase. Why do you think the story of your mother is so important? Well, um, that's a good good question, and I love to answer it. There are, in my opinion, uh, four main reasons. Number one, of course, this book is a tribute to my mother and my grandfather, but also to all those other silent, anonymous helpers who risked their lives for innocent, defenseless people. And the second reason, it is a never-before-told story, directly from the source, and my mother, a helper of Anne Frank, and seven other Jews. Number three, it is a story about a carefully hidden truth. It is history, and it really happened. And finally, but not least, It shows the importance of boundless courage and loyalty in life, because we should never forget what happened in World War II. This story is co-authored by a young Flemish person of 19 years old with much compassion, and I loved to work with him. It's a message also for the younger generation. Amazing, especially, and we're going to talk about that later, because that you get very involved in the book, about how special your mother was. I mean, it took courage. Your mother showed tremendous loyalty when the world was uh, was certainly looking to make life difficult. But uh, so let me ask you the first question: uh, Why did you wait so long to write the book? Okay, okay, okay. Well, um, first of all, I didn't intend to write this book at all. But just after my retirement in two thousand nine. I was 60 years old, a young Flemish boy, the one I just referred to to you uh, a few minutes ago, Jeroen de Bruyne, asked the family permission to write a biography about my mother. And that was a good question, because one could not take it for granted that the family would agree. But after a family discussion, we decided to say yes to this young but talented boy. One could not take it for granted because my mother was always very silent about World War II. She never spoke about it. But this period turned out to be a very dramatic time in her life. A lot happened before we realized this book, but after nearly two of the six years of research and writing, I became the co-author and publisher of my mother's biography. Well, first in Dutch, April uh, 2015, and recently, September 2018, in the English-American language. I can tell you, I was surprised by myself. Huh. So, 
so, I, so let me true. yeah so let me ask you though um as you were growing up did your mother discuss with you all the things that she did for Anne Frank or it was more of a secret mm-hmm. it, it it she was very very silent about it but um for me and my two brothers and sister it was an un, unwritten rule uh, I, I I think I can say that in that way an unwritten rule to leave the past alone my mother really didn't want to talk about this cruel war. However, there was a very dramatic event in my life, that of my mother. My bond with my mum became immensely strong from the time I was 10 years old. Because I'd been able to prevent my mother from committing an act of desperation at home, driven in part by the traumas from the war. From that day on, I was often her confidence when it concerned her war path, young as I was. Oh, well, so, so, it, it, so eventually your mother really did confide, I guess specifically in you, all the things that she did. I mean, it's all the stuff in the book, but your mother confided in you what really was going on. Yes, yes, but... but um, in, in relation to the authentic content of the book, I can tell you additionally that during the research, Jeroen and I were also able to speak with two witnesses who shared mostly unknown information until then. And these witnesses are Dini Foskel, one of Webb's sisters, and Bertus Wilsman, Webb's fiancée during the war. So the, the three of them are uh, the source of this book. Wow, amazing. It's like you imagine that with all the stuff that's been written, you would think after all these years, everybody knows all the details. And in truth, we at best, we had the details from a diary, but we were missing half the story, right? We got we got Anne in that room hidden, but we don't know what's going on outside the room because I don't know how much Anne, did Anne know all the things that, that the helpers were doing? I, I didn't understand your, your question. I'm sorry. No, but the question is that we know there's Anne's diary, but did Anne Frank really understand all the stuff your mother was doing for her? I think uh, she, she, didn't, she didn't realize uh, all the things because um, the, the, the mo- most of the, the actions were uh, out of the house, eh? out of the, uh, the secret annex. And they didn't talk about it because um, talking was very, very dangerous. Wow, amazing. So let me ask you like this. We're getting close to a break, so I, I know you'll hold through the break with me, but um, let me ask you, you know, this obviously, your, your, your mother's story is a totally different angle than the way people are used to reading the story mm-hmm. of Anne Frank. Um, are you satisfied how the book portrays your mother? Well, thank you for asking. It's indeed important to realize that the story told by Anne Frank in her diary is written by a young girl who was present in the secret annex. Our book tells partly the same story, but from a point of view of an adult. An adult who was not only a helper, but also best friends with Anne. Above all, my mother was one of the main providers of not only food and clothes, but information as well. Information from outside, a totally different world than the world behind the revolving bouquet. 
And my mother had to be very careful. I told you already. But she had to be very careful with that mostly awful information. All right, so, Job, if you could just hold, I know I'm interrupting you, but we have to take a quick break. So we're going to take a break for about two minutes, and right after the break, we're going to get more into the story of your mother and Anne Frank. So you're listening to Rabbi Tzu on Let's Talk Torah, and we'll be right back. I'll tell you what happened. Good morning, I got the Szechuan sauce. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. The latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market. All by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Surfing the internet can be good for your brain, especially if you're getting up there in years. UCLA scientists say that the internet searching helps to stimulate your brain function by triggering centers in your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. In a study to be published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, the researchers say that using the internet to seek out new information might stimulate the brain enough to sustain brain health and your cognitive ability. Before the computer age, the one activity that was linked to an active mind was solving crossword puzzles. The fact that even simple tasks like searching the internet might enhance your brain circuitry suggests that our brains are really sensitive to mental exercise and actually continue to learn as we grow older. So using an internet search engine such as Google produces the same brain activities as reading, but it also increases activity in areas of your brain that control decision making and complex reasoning. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. And we're talking to Joe Van Wick, author of Anne Frank, The Untold Story. We're discussing um, Job's mother, Bep, or actually um, Ellie, um, who is Anne Frank's good friend, um, one of the important helpers and the book discusses the story from the angle of the helpers, which are the people on the outside, and not from the side of the people hiding in the room, even though in the book they do discuss some of the things that the, uh, that the Frank family went through inside the room. So, Joe, are you still there with me? Yes, I'm there. Excellent. So let me ask like this to start our next se- segment. Why do you think the story of Anne Frank is important to the Netherlands, to the world, you pick which one is more important. Well, my mother and Anne were best friends, indeed, because they were both young and in love with the man. They loved both music, dancing, and the movies. All stuff to share with each other in confidence. Your second question in general, it was important in that time to be very silent and quiet. You could not trust your colleagues, your neighbor, your friend, and even your brother or sister. There was a bounty in that time on Jews, 
1942, the bounty was two and a half Dutch guilders. And in 1944, the Nazis increased this bounty to 40 Dutch guilders. How much is that nowadays? What would that be worth? Is that like a lot of money? Well, two and a half Dutch guilders was in that time indeed not much. But for 40 Dutch guilders in that time, you could eat again another day with two people. It's horrible, but it was the truth. The truth. Wow. Unbelievable. So you so, talk. Go ahead. So you talk about in the book that not everybody in the family was trusted. How come not everybody was trusted, or is that why they weren't trusted? Um, because um, it is important. Uh, it was in that time uh, so dangerous that when you you had to look uh, uh, back, uh, you had to 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 say less as possible, because. There could be a traitor on the on the corner of uh, of the building. Unbelievable! It is a very very dangerous time. So again, I know I interrupted you. I think I lost my trend of thought myself. So why is the story of Anne Frank important to the Netherlands? Well, I think the diary is important for the whole world. It's a monument for the six million murdered Jewish people. And every young person should read it and realize what it is to be prisoned for 25 months. And our book is in addition to this famous diary and above all implicitly a confirmation of the authentic writings of Anne Frank. It's very, very important that um, this book is a confirmation of the Anne Frank diary. Both books prove that freedom is not be taken for granted. Yeah, so that's a great line, right? Freedom should not be taken for granted. And everybody knows what happens over time. Stories that are written 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, it's, it's mm-hmm. ancient history. Nobody remembers. Maybe it was made up. And now you come out with this book with, all, with these witnesses, and you're talking about your mother— and all of a sudden, it, you give the world a chance to refocus and say, this is not such ancient history, and this is really true, and if we're not careful, um, we could just fall back into what we did last time. People yes, could be true. evil. That's the whole truth. It's, it's, it's unbelievable, and that's why it's my mission, but um, I will come back uh, on that point. You'll come back it's, on which uh, point? Go ahead. Well. So, Joe, let me ask you. I think Because you said you're going to come back on that point. I'm not sure which point you meant. Mm-hmm. Um, well, um, uh, can you give me your last question, please? Yes, we were still just discussing why the story is so important to the world. Yes. Your book, why it's yes. important to the world, to the Netherlands. That was the last question. Well, I think I I answered it. Um, It is because, um, well, when I I say it generally, it is is important when you read it, then you have um, a little idea how it it could be in, in such a horrible war. And, and we, it, it, it is not allowed to forget it, but that is the reason. And, and when you read the book, um, it is uh, 
well, it's not difficult written. Um, people, all people, and especially young people, can read it. And I think for the young, the young generation, it's very important to know what happened in that, in those horrible days. Yeah, it's not. A, it's a very easy read. It goes through. It's a very. It has a lot of notes in it. It's a very easy read. A very pleasant book. Um, let's go off on a little bit of a tangent. Um, there is a section in the book where where you discuss who you believe was responsible for giving up the Frank family. So mm-hmm. I want to know: is that important at this point in history to know who actually gave up? And Frank mm. and the whole Frank family? Well, I think that's a very good question, and I love to answer it. There are, um, there in, in my opinion, there are several reasons why we decided to write about this subject. I have three remarks about this issue. Well, in the first place, it's history, and from that point of view, it's important to know. That's the first thing. But in the second place, Finding the traitor is presently very actual. A retired uh, FBI agent, I, I think you know, but perhaps the listeners not, named Vince Pencoke is investigating already for two years this betrayal of the hider. He is specialized in cold cases, and a team of 50 professionals are supporting him. The project is called Anne Frank, the Cold Case Diary. You can Google it and you will find it. Vince Pancoke read our book and is using now, amongst others, our research in order to solve the case. He asked me to cooperate with him on this matter, and which I gladly do. And in a third place, in relation to the betrayal, we are also dealing in our book, and that's what you meant, uh, with the sister of my mother, who collaborated during the whole war with the Nazis. We don't say she did it, but we were writing a biography, and the biography is history, and so the truth is important for such a book. But even more important is that my mother was loyal to the Jews. Her sister was loyal to the Nazis. To sit at the same table for years with a sister who was loyal to the enemy of these same Jews that was an enormously difficult task. And those kinds of emotions, also after the war, belong in a respectful biography of my mother. So we decided to publish this issue in 2015. And I can say you, my aunt died in 2001 without a husband and children. Nevertheless, it was a difficult, very difficult decision. Because I am her full nephew, but I had to do. We had to do it because it's honest to my mother and honest to history. Well, it's it's amazing. I mean, that's one of the things that will. It's definitely brought out in the book of the. We'll call it the the inner strength of your mother. That she's uh-huh. that she's almost like torn. Right? She's she's protecting this Jewish family. 
And at the same time, she's friends with her sister, who is obviously on the side, or at least from the book, is on the side of the Nazis. And your mother, it, it was important to your mother to show loyalty, and she's showing loyalty to both sides. A very yeah. amazing... Yeah. Very, very difficult for her. And my, my grandfather did the same. Right, but right. It's his, it's his table. Yes, it was his table. It was awful uh, to sit on this table. My, uh, my mom said to me, and um, my grandmom too, and when, when I was talking about the war, um, my mother said it was so awful to sit and, to, and, and, and it was not allowed to cry or to shout or something like that because otherwise um, uh, she, she brought the Jews in danger. Wow. Unbelievable. Amazing, amazing. As our time is winding down... And um, and I hope people will look up the book. Again, it's called Anne Frank, The Untold Story. Joe Van Wick is the author. Um, so two things. First of all, if somebody wants to get the book, is the easiest way to go onto Amazon. Yes. Great. Amazon.com. So, right, Amazon.com. They can pick up the book. It's in paperback. It's not an expensive book. It's a it's a very good read. we got to get in some of the libraries here. But, um, Joe, before I let you go... In uh, 60 seconds, is there anything you would like to leave us with? Yes, I have indeed a, a last uh, remark. Um, uh, I want to say to your listeners, the content of this biography is my mission. Already for 10 years, I told you. With many new facts, it's in addition to the famous diary of Anne Frank. And it's a tribute to my mother, my grandfather, as well as all those anonymous helpers who risk their lives for innocent, defenseless people. It is my small contribution to peace, understanding, respect, and above all, loyalty to every human being. That's my, that's my last word. Well, Job, I can tell you, I believe that all the things you're trying to accomplish, you certainly accomplished in the book. You certainly found me to get the message out. Um, yes, I'm sure you. you're going on book tours. You're you're on Facebook again. I don't know how many people with the name J O O P uh, Van Wick uh, W I J K, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing the name wrong, and I and I do apologize. But really, a fantastic read, an important read. Um, and if you're off for the holidays because it's Passover, go order the book. Joe, I can't thank you enough. I know it took us a few times of trying to actually connect, but I yeah. greatly appreciate that you took the time to share with us your story and share with me the book. Um, I appreciate it. Um, it's holiday season for a lot of us, so happy holidays. And thank yeah. you again, Joe, for joining us. It is greatly appreciated. You are very, very welcome. I did it with pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, Joe, be well. Thank you. Okay, really a fantastic read. Um, Jope and I have been going back and forth. Um, this is actually our third try. Um, there were two other times we were supposed to get together, and actually both times were my fault that we weren't able to get together, but I'm really happy that Jope was able to connect with us, was able to tell the story. And, yeah, he wants to talk about loyalty. He wants about loyalty. He wants people to know how evil anti-Semitism is. And he wants you to know the struggle that his mother had to go through 
to be loyal to her friend Anne. It was not easy in those days for somebody who wasn't Jewish to be loyal, a lot of pressure. And that's what he said, around the family table, not everybody in his mother's family was hiding the Jews. They they had to hide this information from some of the siblings. Things got worse. Job, we didn't talk about it. his father died, so it became much harder to keep it a secret. But uh, again, it's a great read. And I see my time is winding down for this segment. So, we have one segment left to get us ready for Passover. I'm not sure if we're going to be joined by my friend Rabbi Yonason. Maybe you will, maybe not. If not, we still got to get to our word of the week, some important stories about Passover. So, you're listening to Rabbi Tzu on New Radio Media. And hold through the break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, Podquesters, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good roll. Yes, it's an epic sweeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on NewRadioMedia.com, Fridays, Podcasters. See you there. Many times we see a guy running down to first base, and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. umped. I mean, that's the, get umped. <laughs> I can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. Yep, what's up? This is your boy, Walter Jones, also known as Zach, the original Black Ranger, and you are geeking out with Geek Tainment Weekly at New Radio Media. It's more the time. The Bee Gees song, Staying Alive, just might help someone you know stay alive. It's one of those beats you just can't get out of your head once it's there. And it turns out the disco song has 103 beats per minute, which happens to be the perfect number to maintain the rhythm for performing CPR. A study out of Illinois found that doctors and medical students who listened to the song while they were practicing CPR not only performed flawlessly, but they also remembered the technique five weeks later. The keys to CPR are performing the technique aggressively, that is pushing hard enough and pushing on the chest fast enough to force the blood to where it needs to go. So when it comes to proper technique, it turns out that compressing the chest to the beat of staying alive really can help the victim stay alive. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back for our last segment before the Passover holiday. And I can't see Zach, but I know he's there. Zach, are you ready for our poster? He is ready. So, behind me, to my right, you can all see, even though I can't see it, but you can all see we're actually up to the last letter of the Jewish alphabet. I actually think it's like our third time through already, even though I think some of these weeks we got out of order. The last letter is the letter either Suf or Tuf. It could be it's two letters. The Ashkenazi version can have an S and a T sound. The Svaradik version only has the T sound. It's the last letter. It uh, basically looks like a door frame with a, with a, with a leg sticking out. Um, it is the last letter. Its numerical value is 400. And um, the word I thought of this week is tamun. Now, that's funny because that is the wrong word, but that's the word I had in my mind. So it's spelled wrong. So that's terrible. 
So I should really come up with another word. So I'm going to cheat. Probably Zach is putting words up there. The word tamun means hidden. That's supposed to be my word of the week. However, I forgot when I was preparing, that's not the tough, that's the test. So I got my brother-in-law laughing at me that I got the wrong letter there. So we're just going to say the word tefillah. Tefillah means praise, even though that's not the word that's up on the screen. That's my fault uh, for my preparation, but better luck next time. Tefillah is prayer. It's one of the things we're very involved in. Actually, um, this morning, I was by a circumcision. And I was given what's called the Kiseishel Elio. That means I put the baby down on a chair, and we say, Lie to the Prophet comes to every circumcision. And it's a very special time to pray. So I took advantage. We all like to pray. And again, the Passover season and the holiday, there's all kinds of good times to pray, good things to pray for, pray for our children, pray, pray for our health, pray for our wealth, all the good things, the important things in life. Make sure you focus what's right, what's wrong. And uh, so much for the wrong word that I had prepared, even though the word I had prepared is great for Passover. But better luck next time. But with my couple minutes left, um, I wanted to talk about something that's um, famous over the Passover season. Not so much nowadays, but, uh, but historically it's famous. That was called the blood libels. What happened was, and it, it goes way back in history, hundreds and hundreds of years, where um, where the the um, the priests would tell their congregants that the Jews needed blood, needed Christian blood, which doesn't really make sense, but they said Jews needed Christian blood in their matzah. Now, what's fascinating about that whole story is the Torah is very explicit that blood is off limits. We don't touch any blood. There's clear verses that blood is off limits. But the people that were being riled up and were being told uh, that the Jews needed blood in their matzah couldn't read, and there was no one to tell them otherwise. So this led—the Passover season was always a, a, a scary season because the Jews knew if a, if a child went missing— then they knew that there was a setup and they had to worry about their neighborhoods being overrun by peasants, people getting killed, people being stolen, people, things being destroyed. That was something that, that was constant. And even in the early, I think it was in 1917, I think, can't remember exactly, I forgot to look it up, um, in upstate New York, there was a child that went missing and the sheriff actually went to a rabbi to find out if there's anything to this blood libel, there was a famous trial in the, in Russia, also in the early 1900s, also about the blood libels. And that actually became like a worldwide uh, trial. They had to make sure that it looked honest, and uh, a lot of funny stories come out of that trial. But what I, the point I wanted to get to is that the night of Passover, and the Torah is called a night of watching. And it was God... Um, it gives like an extra prote protection to the Jewish people on that night or this night. I know it's going to be Friday night, the night of Passover. It's always been a famous night for protection. And there's numerous versions, and I believe they say the rules are if you hear the same story told over and over again, just uh, the names have changed, then uh, you could believe the story. You just have to wonder who were the actual players. And there's numerous stories of rabbis that had dreams and they couldn't fall asleep or their wine cup kept uh, spilling over or um, or something was troubling them and they would go to the synagogue and they would open the, and they'd see the ark door was open and they would check the bottle of wine and they would sniff the bottle of wine and someone had exchanged blood for the wine. 
So the rabbis would either spill it down the sink or they would drink it and they would rinse it out, whatever they did. And then the next day by services, when the synagogue is surrounded, so the um, the the rabbi is, is the only one that knows uh, he's in on the game. And whoever was leading the soldiers was also in on the game. And the synagogue would be surrounded and they would come in and they'd say, we know you need blood for your Passover sacrifices and we need to search your synagogue to see if there's blood here. Again, if you need it for the, I'm sorry, sacrifice for the matzah. If you know that we need blood for the matzah, then why would there be blood in a wine bottle? It should have already been mixed um, into the into the matzah. But okay, you, you can ask all the questions you want. It's not going to help you. So the guards would go, they search, and oh, look, look, here's this bottle. It's full of wine. It's full of blood. And uh, the, uh, the guard or the police chief or the sheriff would give it a taste, and he'd say, it's wine. And so the rabbi might know what's going on, and the guy who set it up and put the blood there to, um, to catch the Jews and be able to create these blood libels, that was, all, uh, that was all a setup, and the Jewish people were saved, and that's part of this special night of watching. Um, so therefore, it's always been considered a historical night of protection and actually historically there's many 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 miracles throughout our history that happen to specifically take place on this night so i see we're getting towards the end lots of people to thank as always i have to thank my wonderful sponsor listeners you know i couldn't do without you thank you to my wonderful production team i got tony zach angel ethan zach is back there for the first time kelsey special shout out wasn't feeling well she couldn't be here today um i hope i left you some food for thought until next week I am Rabbi T. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on the Radio Media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.